The following is an at-will presentation. Welcome to The Marrow, conversations with creatives about who they are and why they make what they make. I'm your host, Josh Reebok. Today I'm sitting down with Andy Baxter, one half of the really, really, really inspiring musical duo, Penny and Sparrow. Andy is one of the most sensitive individuals I know. I think that comes across in his music, certainly in his mind, his ability not only to sing, but to articulate all the things going bump between his psyche and his soul. first album you bought let's see here yeah i think i do uh, it was in walmart and it wasn't an album it was uh a tape single it was in the huge like dollar bin and i went and for whatever reason i was fascinated by them and so uh, whoop there it is was the <laughs> uh the big song at the time but i didn't i didn't end up getting whoop there it is i got uh, inadvertently i got the double-sided spanish and english version so i got whoop silo s <laughs> So uh, I didn't mean to do this thing. And a, and a music career was born Yeah, right then. <laughs> After that, the first time I remember buying a record that mm-hmm. I thought was worth a damn, that I loved lyrically and I was engaged with, was probably uh, The Cranberries or, um, gosh, uh, maybe Broadway, like 10th anniversary edition of La Mis when my mom like exposed me to that. That was probably the first time I was like, oh, damn, something's different. Yeah. And I'm imagining that kind of resonated with you in a way that probably a lot of the other things that culture could put on a plate and serve to you didn't resonate. Yeah, I also knew beyond that, it resonated with me differently. It's like it it came at different wavelengths. I'd watch movies with my buddies or I'd listen to songs with my buddies and for whatever reason, the things that I found pretty in them were different. And the way that I wanted to talk about them versus the way that it seemed like folks talked about this shit was different. Right. And so... I remember watching stuff with my boys and then slowly but surely I would want to steer conversations toward, uh, did you notice all the shit in the background that was the same color? <laughs> or did you notice how uh, in that micro expression he did this and that made the entire scene great? That's why it made me cry or that's why it made me mad or whatever. And uh, there wasn't a ton of interest from 12-year-old boys wanting to pick apart mise-en-scene. But so it sounds like from, but, I mean, that that's pretty young, I mean, in the grand scope of things, to be aware of the complexities and nuances of a production or a song. I mean, is that around the same time when you uh, started to kind of interact with your own sense of creativity? Man, yes and no. I, I certainly know I was making things and trying my hand at a bunch of different types of outlets young, but I don't think that I knew that what I was doing was um, inherently creative. I just assumed it was me-centric. I assumed that this is just how I watch movies, or this is just how I w- listen to songs. 
I notice that and it doesn't matter that somebody else doesn't. This is just how I do it. And so it didn't translate into me making stuff, definitely not confidently making stuff until years and years later in college and past college. Well, why did that, why did that take so long? Uh, <laughs> I can tell you part of it. I don't know all of it. Um, at my family at one point thought, because I could sing early, I did a lot of church singing and stuff like that, and I think that they thought I had this thing, like the whatever X factor, you know, to get to do this for money. And so my grandmother, through a connection, sent me here uh, to New York to live for a summer. And she came with me. And it was with this guy named Billy Parks. Uh, S or not, I'm not sure. Billy Park, Billy Parks. He was the understudy to Michael Crawford for The Phantom for a long time. Okay. And so I came down here, and I, we would get up early for like uh, a couple months. And we would get up early, and we would... Um, wake up at his piano, just he and I, and he would take me through voice rehearsals and recitals, and, or exercises, rather. And I remember having this sort of strange, right after puberty, existential crisis in my head to where I realized I couldn't do what he could do. I, I would try, because I could, I'd sat at home and listening to records and trying to make my voice do the things that people could do. And even with a little bit of choir training and personal voice training in school, like I could do some of the stuff, except for like the really, really hard shit. Mm-hmm. You know? And then I remember sitting down face to face with this person who could do these things, like being skin close to them and then watching them make their voice do these things. And I couldn't. And it was incredibly discouraging. Now, see, no, all right, now I'm just going to go ahead and interrupt. See, that's interesting because it, I mean, I'm sure it probably did some of this too, but your immediate reaction wasn't to aspire to that. It wasn't, I'm inspired by that. It was more to go, what does it mean? What does my gift now mean if I can't do what this person can do? It's like that scene in Goodwill Hunting yeah. when, you know, when Gerald Lambeau has now come to this realization that Will's, you know, intellectual acumen is so far superior to his own, and it has now ceased to inspire him. And he says, I, n- I wish I never met you. Yeah. Because it's now like he can't even um, savor and cherish his own ability because he feels like it's, you know, kind of shrouded in the long shadow of will. I mean, is that, I mean, is that what happened? To be fair... It wasn't like I felt in that scenario like I was Gerald Lambeau and he was Will Hunting. It was like I met someone that was just a little bit smarter. Like I'm, I was in the presence of a Gerald Lambeau yeah. and I couldn't even do what he could do. It's mm-hmm. like you desperately want to figure out if you're a wonderkind. Yeah. You want to know whether or not, for whatever reason, you have this thing. And since I grew up being around people that, at least in my small sphere of influence, like I could sing well. Mm-hmm. And it was impressive to the people that were around me in my community. Yeah, And so I sort of carried this hope. It wasn't even like a, a vanity conceited, like chip on my shoulder, I'm a badass when I walked into this guy's foyer that is piano <laughs> expecting myself to be really, really, really great. Yeah. But I certainly hoped I would be. Yeah. I hoped that, I, you know, when my number got called at this piano that this cat would start tinkering around. He'd be like, holy shit, mm-hmm. you got it, kiddo. Mm-hmm. And so more than anything, I, it wasn't like I looked at him and said, you know, I wish I didn't know that you existed. It's more like, shit, I really thought I had it. Mm-hmm. I really thought I had this thing, whatever this thing is, this X factor. So then is, 
is how much did that realization play into then the delay between you having this ability and then really like committing yourself fully to stretching those muscles and using that talent? No, I mean, it was grand larceny for years. I mean, it, it, it stole so much. And again, it, there's no blame more than anything. If, if there is, if the finger's pointed anywhere, it, it's at my own like little boy insecurity that never grew up mm-hmm. or that took so long uh, to grow up. It stunted a ton of stuff from that moment because then I just assumed I already had this thing in the back of my head that was like, okay, I'm sure there's other, you know, insecure scenarios that played into it. It wasn't just this one cataclysmic event, but I do point at that as being pretty pivotal. And I remember thinking, okay, from here on out, if I do music, it's only going to be hobby. I'll never be someone who does this as a job. I'll never be someone who is good enough to earn an income. And the, uh, the praise that I receive will always come a bit tainted for me because I'll know that there's other people out there that have this thing that I don't have, mm-hmm. which I've since seen the fallacy in, but by God, it took me a long time to recognize it as such. And so then, okay, so, so walk, us, walk us through here. So while you have this kind of talent and you clearly have like a passion for it, like it's not like your interest or appreciation of music or the arts ever waned, no. though you weren't necessarily committing yourself fully to exercising your own talents and passions. Yeah. So you go through this period, and now, so like, so what happens? You get into your mid, late twenties, and then all of a sudden you wake up in Austin, Texas. I mean, you're doing what, and what in then is the impetus behind you going? I, I want to give this a try. I think more than anything, our entire career and the fact that we have like a band that gets to travel and do this full-time. I don't know that it could have happened any other ways than it did because it was accidental. So much of this was DIY. We began the entire process as a hobby. It became like the only engine behind everything that we did musically from the start was all joy-based. It was all hobby. I want to do this because it's fun. I'm not expecting this to earn income. I'm not doing this to break. Yep. I'm not doing this in hopes that I'm going to have the incredible Ruben Studdard, I'm sorry, for 2004 yeah. song that Perfect. makes me uh, enough right. bank to keep going. If anything, I just wanted to have something years from now that I could point my buddies and my kids and my wife to and be like, hey, I had this album one time that I released. Yeah. Check it out. Yeah. And I wanted to be proud of it, and mm-hmm. I wanted to be... I wanted to feel good and accomplished, and I wanted to enjoy myself in the way. Mm-hmm. And... So we made one, and we did it in Sarah and I's first apartment off of Guadalupe. Your wife, Sarah. Yeah, yes. my wife, Sarah. We, we ended up living in this apartment that backed up to an orphanage. And uh, so in the background of our first EP, you can hear them like kids playing, <laughs> which may have sounded like a really nifty aesthetic decision, but we didn't have the cash or the rig to edit that shit out. Mm-hmm. And so we make this EP. I'm proud of it. I really enjoy it. We release it, and then... The next building block is the, you know, that's the pushing of the snowball down the hill, and it starts to get mass and speed because we live in Austin, which is a music city. And so we're like, how fun would it be just to play one show with for our friends? So we play one show for our friends, and our friends come, and our friends buy booze. And that's enough to have people be like, hey, you can come back if you want. So we do so again. 
and suddenly there's this thing that gets invented called Kickstarter and crowdfunding is a thing because I happen to find myself in an era of history to where perfectly placed is this, you know, ability to raise the money needed to do a full length album. We're like, well, shit, we did an EP. Why don't we try and do something like that? That sounds fun. That's another thing I can point my family toward. Again, the entire time, no piece of me is like, I can't wait until I'm, you know, bathing in Shibli and enjoying myself. <laughs> The, the whole point of this just being make out of an engine that uh, is honest. And the honest engine behind it all was, I want to do this. This is fun. I enjoy music. There was, I really felt like the part of me that assumed I would ever be Michael Crawford, Billy Parks, insert name here of someone who is touted as being amazing as a singer or as a songwriter, that was dead. And... And it was okay, but in its place was this uh, honest, have fun doing it. And don't worry about comparison because you're just doing this to yeah. show your family anyway, and they're already proud of you. Is it harder to make things now and to create because it's no longer just a hobby? Uh, yes and no. Uh, the The tension's different. Like the, the temptations are different. I find myself asking questions on the front end of songwriting and singing that I never did. Like what? Like, um, is this album too sad? Will people respond and think that this album is... Uh, more, than, more than anything, I'm just considering their responses. I, I wonder whether or not some of the best pieces that were ever made, if anyone else's opinion was ever consulted in their psyche mm. of the artist. I was at this... Uh uh, this kind of conversation about writing up in the Sequoia National Forest in California, and I get it—you're well traveled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and one of the one of the questions that was posed was, uh, Josh, what do you say to someone who, though they love to write, never wants or intends to make a career of writing? They they always plan on keeping it as kind of an ancillary portion of their life. And I don't I don't know how much I had thought of that. Um, but my, my honest opinion is that I think the artistic hobbyists, for lack of better terms, need to lead the artistic professionals because they have license to take risks that oftentimes we get too scared to make because we're considering uh, income, fan base, what yes. we might lose in the process. Yes. And so for me, it's like the people that are making art in the privacy of their own den, bedroom, or on their laptop, they need to be like the prophets on our behalf to, to tell us you need to go further and you need to stop um, backing away from some of these things simply because the crowd of voices that you hear in your head maybe tells you otherwise. And, and I mean, I, I'm trying to remember the, um, it may have been Stevie Ray Vaughan who was asked the question, who are the greatest guitar players in the world? And if I remember right, he said the greatest guitar players in the world are sitting in little bars in Texas, and we've never heard of them before. Yeah. And there, there's something to that um, where the fears change. You know, The fears change, not just as human beings, but I think as creatives. It's like the fears change when the stakes change. Yeah. And the fears change when the following changes. And the fears change when we start to have like, I don't know, that voice of, of expectation in the, you know, in the words of William Shakespeare, expectation is the root of all heartache. Hmm. And there is something about not just writing a song or writing a book 
or creating a business where you're just making it out of instinct and passion um, and joy, but where you start to go, what are what is so and so going to think? And all of a sudden, the question is this going to work yes. comes into play, right? Hey, all the things that you just said resonate a ton with me, especially when you <laughs> you called these people. It, if those people are prophets, if the people at home with small recording rigs, podcasts from basements, uh, singers on YouTube, if you if you look at those people as legitimate prophets, then never before has any generation set up more um, profit making. P R O P H. Like there's so many of them. There we have the capability. Like the market is saturated with people who get to do this now who get to make songs from their home studio, who get to write and release blogs, who get to uh, like so much. And that's great, and it's tough at the same time. More than anything, though, I agree with you when you say that they need to lead because when I wasn't asking the questions, when I never asked or wondered, will this work? Will it sell? Mm-hmm. Will this be palatable? It's almost like I... F- at a certain degree, you find yourself asking, how creative can I be without sacrificing sellability? Mm-hmm. And uh, I openly rebuke that in my head when it comes around, but it certainly comes around. Like that yeah. temptation comes. And it, I don't know if you're like me, but it, for my medium in particular, there are people that frustrate the hell out of me. And it frustrates me because I see what they can do with their mechanism. I look at the things that Ariana Grande or Justin Bieber, these people that, in my mind, have they can dance on the heads of pins of notes. Mm-hmm. They can pluck them out of thin air, and they can just stand on them confidently and sustain them and hold them. And so they know their tool. And whether they've studied it or whether – I never watched his documentary. I'm sure it's great. But <laughs> whether, whether, you know, this is a learned thing or he came out of, you know, in utero, he was singing. I have no idea, but it bothers me that people that can do that use a word bank that's this small. <laughs> when I, all I want to do is like, by God, kid, let me paint with that brush, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. And part of that's still uh, insecure based because it's all comparison, right? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna ask, like, t- talk about your insecurities um, because you've chosen a profession. <laughs> that is on the daily going to shine a really bright, white, hot interrogation light on those insecurities. Yeah. Because you're, you're willingly taking the things that you make, things that, um, I mean, from what I know of you, are, are personal. And you're putting them on display for right or for wrong right. to be critiqued, savored, or spit out. Right. And so, so, so talk about those insecurities. They vary. It used to be as simple as, uh, I wonder if I will ever, I wonder if I'll be able to sing again. I wonder if this next time will be the last time that I open my voice and there will be any control. Like my mouth will open and I step, like there's still this moment that used to be way more often, but right before I walk up to the microphone, I'll sing off the mic for just a second. Half a bar, half a measure. And part of that's literally just sort of feels like a pitcher, like sort of rolling his shoulder around and making sure there's no click, making sure that yeah, maybe he just takes the rubber and he wonders whether or not if I reach back and throw, is it going to be a 65-mile-an-hour noodle, or do I still have gas in the yeah. tank? And so part of me worries because bodies are fickle, man. 
-hmm. Like this meat sack that I walk around in all day is prone to degrade and erode. And so part of me is sort of terrified at times that depending on what my allergies do Mm -hmm. at any given day, am I not going to have you know, my stuff when I walk up on stage and sing. Do you remember one of the more hurtful things you've heard in regards to your music? Uh, no, but scene, yeah. It's a face expression. Hmm. As, as, I don't know, if, uh, as a perennially insecure human who's hmm. pretty well versed in that stuff, you, you don't mean to, maybe, or you don't set out to at the dawn of your life, but you become an incredible studier of micro-expression. <laughs> And I sit there and find uh, when I've known I've not hit a note well or I've – it was South by Southwest, Austin, three years ago. And it was in a listening room called Windflow. And I remember the song was Just and Just As. And I remember there's this, you know, big, huge Paramount moment in the song where I really have to stick to landing. And if I do, I think it's pretty damn impressive when I <laughs> do it. And uh, – this was the perfect room. It was at the beginning of us really trying to do this job. <laughs> and I hit just the gnarliest clunker that there is. I opened my mouth, and what came out was not only wrong, but it was god-awful. <laughs> just uh, should have been a forbidden noise. <laughs> and I make it, and then I immediately, because I'm foolish, look around and keep singing, but I maintain eye contact in this room of 60 people because it's a small room. And I see this flood of faces and their recognition that they caught it, mm -hmm. that they saw it. So any version of that, it's like this moment where um, without getting too uh, Freudian or dime store therapist, uh, me and my old man have a great relationship now, but there's this moment. He played ball in college. He was a baseball player, and so was my granddad. And there was this moment where I remember after a game, this like facial recognition where I saw him flip the switch, where he's like, okay, my boy can't do what I could do with my hands when, when I was there. Like I was there, and my old man could do it, and I could do it, and he can't, and that's okay. But I saw him make the switch, and I was like, oh, fuck. You know, there's that moment yeah. where on his face, micro-expression, even at 12, 13, I knew. Yeah. Like, I knew what that meant. And it's not on him. That's, again, that's so many of these battles internally. Maybe yeah. he had indigestion and I misread his face. I don't know what the <laughs> fuck happened. But I know that those are the things. Words, a lot of times, um, what people say mm -hmm. mean less to me than those small the minutia in that way; those yeah. can be crushing in yeah. a world of insecurity. And I and I find I find that a lot of times it's not when I am flat out critiqued, slammed, or reviled that ends up being uh, the most poisonous to my psyche and soul. Mm. It's when I'm assuming that's what someone's thinking, because when it's concrete, I can kind of take it, deal with it, and move on. But when I'm just inferring, it creates this kind of paranoia that can echo through me and I think maybe they didn't like me. Is that why they said it this way or did they mean even that compliment? Was it backhanded? And I'm amazed at how that stuff um, becomes so corrosive, not just in terms of my own kind of uh, self-confidence. It's like a lot of times then when I show up to write next time, it's like that voice is still there. Yeah. And it's like I find myself having to like write that voice out of my head you know, and then I, then I may show up in a room of just 
you know, interpersonal relationships. It can be my wife or my sister or something. And I'm wondering then if the person I'm sitting across from, even though I've maybe known him for years, have they been thinking that thing about me too totally. all this time and just not and just not told me? And so I, I, I feel this kind of um, lunacy that like starts to set in if I don't really like address those things. And yet you, I mean, in, in my own way, I suppose I have as well. And yet you've chosen a vocation. Yeah. You have this passion that forces you to confront those things on the regular. So, so I guess part of what, where that takes me and I'd love to hear is like when you, and you know, I don't know how you do this, but have you seen your insecurities grow in intensity throughout your years as a full-time musician or have they dwindled because you've had to stare them down on the daily? I think that they've dwindled. I think that they've lessened, but I also think that they've evolved. They're different insecurities now. Um, I don't know what it is. I'm sure that there have been plenty of studies that show that people, I don't really like the term creatives very, very much, but people who find themselves in jobs like the ones that you find yourself in, writing books or singing songs for a living or writing screenplays or being on Broadway or painting, for whatever reason, those people seem so chock full of insecurity um, and a lot of them are self-haters or they're, they've swum in those waters a ton. Um, I don't know what the tie is to those personality types and that seeming disease of the brain at times, but I, I feel it. That said, to answer your question, the more I do this job, the insecurity is certainly still there, but it's changed face. Now I, the insecurities I feel are, does do the things that I've written stand up when they are put next to other things that I revere? Yep. Things that have a lasting impact. The songs that you can't believe were ever actually written. Like, was Blackbird ever not a song? <laughs> was Eleanor Rigby, didn't that just like, a, you know, the creation when everything was breathed into being or the big bang of things, didn't that, wasn't that just a byproduct? Mm-hmm. Like, how did anyone sit down and write Hallelujah? Like, what? Yeah. And then you wonder, will I ever, you know, catch the lightning in a bottle? Or is that what it is? Is a song of that caliber or a book of that caliber or a painting of that caliber attainable? Or is it all just subjective? Hmm. You know, Hmm. like those are like these weird, strange, insecure, existential arguments that I have in my brain at times about this job. Do you believe in the, the, the tortured artist archetype? I think I'm too happy and optimistic most of my days and most of my existence to give it much cred. I certainly feel it at times, but I mean, I feel like if you only had the 11 minutes that we've been talking thus far and you would gauge my personality type, I wonder whether or not you would find me to be a jovial human. (laughs) But most of my time is spent pretty happy and smiling and optimistic. And I know people that do this job singing songs, troubadouring around for a living that almost perpetuate the cycle of uh, whether they believe it truly in their core that they need to be drunk and sad to write good music, I don't know. (laughs) But I certainly know that they're not giving themselves many uh, opportunities to write music not drunk and sad. Mm -hmm. Like it's this really weird positive feedback loop that they stay in for a while. And I don't believe much in that. Do you believe that your optimism is an asset? when you create? Yes, I do. 
I don't think that you have to be, well, not yet anyway, I don't feel like I have to be sad or a sad person or have a crumbling marriage to write about one. I feel like I can get in that headspace like it's a character, like it's a fictional beast that I get to study from all angles and look at it from there. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I need to create that. I don't need to pluck a non-existent scenario and superimpose it on my life yeah. so that I can make it work in a song or even make it believable. Somebody asked me the other day in an interview that we did, uh, how emotionally taxing is it for you to put yourself back in the headspace of these really um, emotive, introspective songs? They seem to take the snow globe of a person's life and just shake the shit out of it and just hand it back to them. Like, how hard is that to sing those songs day in and day out for people? Do you just check out? Do you just not engage? Or are you sad when you sing these? And more than anything, uh, that's not how I view those interactions. Hmm. I know where I was when I wrote them. I know what those songs meant to me. I know that some of them sing honestly about insecurity or infidelity or, you know, joy and triumph all the same. But if anything, Kyle, my bandmate, said this thing a little while ago. Um, I want our music to be what people need it to be. I want it to be what they need. And so in those moments, it's almost like when I sing for people, I, I greatly hope it's cathartic for them if they've ever been in this position that I'm singing about or if they are currently in the position that I'm singing about. Mm-hmm. I want it to be for them what it was for me the first time. And so I, I don't feel like I have to re-engage sadness at a level that makes me cry so as to be honest. Hmm. What role does desperation play in making music? In making art. How do you mean? In terms of I have to make because it's it's crawling out of my skin and I want well, to I'm, so bad. I'm thinking of the I'm thinking of the uh, the adage that says artists are desperate people and when they lose their desperation they cease to be artists. Oh gosh. Hmm. And almost in the quote, I, I don't know if I agree, but I guess it just depends on how you view and define certain things, but it almost implies that there needs to be a certain degree of somber seriousness to the creative process at times that I don't always find. I don't always find. It's not that can an architect get his job done just as efficiently if he whistles while he works, if he's pleased his punch while he drew every schematic up on the blueprint. Uh, I don't necessarily think it, it requires a heaviness of heart in order to make. Do you think it requires a hunger? I like to think good art does. I like to think that the part of me that wonders whether or not the the stuff that I sing or that I write is going to hold up forever, or at least hold up until, you know, human consciousness subsides <laughs> and we <laughs> Skynet becomes active. <laughs> I like to think that the part of me that desperately wants to write something as good as Paul McCartney has written, or fill in the blank, that hunger, oh yeah, I, I think that has driven me to write some sentences that I'm proud of, and that's for an insecure person to say of anything they have ever made, I am proud of that, and that impressed me, is a really big step. Yeah, and and 
I mean, that makes sense to me. When I, when I think of when I think of like that quote about desperation, I, I take it in my head to these jobs are too hard to not be really hungry. Like if if you're not hungry, if you don't have a sense of desperation, like not even a not even a gloom, but just a sense of I have to make I have to make this, I have to keep making things, I have to keep showing up. To me, um, I can get discouraged way too easily, and I need that desperation to combat the discouragement that that seems to so often kind of swell, mm-hmm. you know. And I need this sense of like. Um, I have to keep going. I cannot let go of this thing, yeah. you know. And for me, um, in the seasons when I have lost that sense, I tend to make the things that I'm least proud of. And it's not necessarily just because I'm discouraged, but um, it's because I'm not willing to dig deep enough. Like even like you know whether whether you're inventing a fictional scenario in which you are then implementing your own psyche and emotions to write a song or whether it's born out of something that's genuine, to me, unless someone really wants to do these things, why would you put yourself through that? Like, and so for me, when I think of that, those words, when I think of desperation, that's kind of where my mind goes. It's, it's, it's like the, uh, uh, the Picasso painting, the guitarist. You know, it's like this kind of withered old man clinging to this guitar and you know in the eye of the beholder you see what you see but so much of what I see when I see that painting is I see a man who both survives and is destroyed by his art Hmm. it's like he needs it to survive he can't let go there's no one else in the painting it's just this blue like kind of somber background it's like this is his companion and so on the one hand he needs it but on the other hand, it may be the one thing that's withering him away at the same time. Yeah. And, and, and again, that's what I see. And I do find, you know, that's a very dramatic way of talking about what the creative process feels like sometimes. Yeah. And to me, without a sense of desperation, this kind of ambiguous drive, yeah. this ambiguous appetite, it's like, why would someone do that? I, I don't know if you ever have this, but sometimes I, I, I have the fantasy. I go, I just want to be like a bus driver. I just want to go and like work in a toll booth. Yeah. I, I want to I be a bartender. I wanna, I, when I was in college, I was, I was a janitor for a while. Mm-hmm. And it's one of my most um, fond seasons in terms of job. And part of the reason was because I didn't feel like any of my insides were on the line when I did it. Hmm. And for me, um, th- there was just there was something so freeing about that to go, I, I, for this time, don't have to confront me when I do this. And I found something so cathartic in that. And on the days when my desperation wanes and my discouragement is larger than it, yeah. Those are the days when I want to not do it anymore, and I want to do something that doesn't, for me, require nearly as much internal hunger in order to keep going. Yeah. Your take on the guitarist is an interesting one to me, because I look at that, and I see this old man, you know, as you say, like clutching and clinging to this guitar, that you say maybe the thing that gives him, you know, that he hangs his hat on, the only thing of substance in his life, but it's also killing him. In the same breath, it's both poison and nutrition. Uh, and I, 
I don't inherently disagree with that reading, but I guess part of me wonders whether or not there's another painting, a sister painting, that's not painted blue, but it's red. And there's an equally as old man with a red guitar that's smiling and he's playing. Mm. And that is another version of how you could look at art in my mind. Like, yes, there are moments where I wish I had a job that was nine to five and had tasks and that they were finite and they were labeled and they were checking off of of a sheet of paper. And I knew when my day was done because I knew I had accomplished X and Y and Z. Yeah, I I fantasize about that at times. And yeah, even sometimes it's because I, I knew that I wouldn't have to go through the emotional rigors of making things at that job. Mm-hmm. I just sling coffee. Mm-hmm. I just, and that's not an unadm, it's not a, a, a shitty profession. It's just a different profession. Mm-hmm. But the crummy thing, uh, you, you mentioned earlier about the starving artist or the um, tortured, artist. tortured artist motif, if you will. I don't know what it is about our people, our people being the folks that do this job, but sometimes I, I feel like there's an unnecessary sense of martyrdom in the sense that we get to make beautiful things. We get to make things that can give joy. We get to make things that have inspired people to smile for hours of their lives sometimes. And I, I just wonder why we don't more often drink of that and, and hang around that thought for a moment and realize that, yeah, it's not driving a bus that we get to leave from 9 to 5 and there's finite hours. And it does require a lot of us emotionally. And it does, I don't know, there's a certain degree of power that comes with being able to move and bend and, and shift people's emotions around with the things that leave your hand or your mouth. And I, there's a power there. We, we've talked about that before in conversations. But more than anything, I feel like there's so much to be celebrated in what we make mm-hmm. personally. Mm-hmm. And this is where your optimism bleeds through. And for me, you know, if, if you are the sun, I'm more the moon. <laughs> and I, and I, have, I have much more of an, I, I, don't, I don't know if I would call it cynicism, but I would definitely call it skepticism yeah. in the sense that I don't necessarily look for the bad in everything, but I definitely, I definitely question a lot of things. Yeah. And a lot of times I, I remember... When we were, um, my manager and I were on that the Heroes and Monsters tour. So this was, you know, four years ago now, probably right around this time, mm-hmm. and uh, and we we went and saw a movie. I don't even remember what it was. We we're like in Phoenix, Arizona. This was like toward the end, and we come out, and I did what I always do. We get in the car, and I think I was driving, but I didn't turn on the engine. I just sat there, you know, kind of, you know, scraping the keys back and forth, and I went, "What did that mean to you?" And he looked at me and he goes, no, I can't take any more. What does it mean? How do I feel? I can't anymore dissect an experience and try to find greater meaning. Because for him, the fact that I always do that robbed it of meaning. It didn't give it meaning. And for me, that's how I find meaning in it, is I have to break it down and understand my insides as they relate to this thing that's been put before me. Yeah. But I realized that by doing that, I'm kind of trampling on just his ability to just go, that was good, and I smiled, and I laughed, yeah. and that was enough. And and for me, um, sometimes I feel like I'm unable to sate that desire for meaning in me. Yeah. And in doing so, 
I do crush meaning. Like I, I, I'll have a, you know, a good cup of coffee or a day at the beach. And rather than just going, I, I'm happy and leaving it at that, I go, why am I happy? Right. And then I end up kind of going down that spiral staircase into this peculiar dungeon. And before I know it, you know, the, the blue skies have given way to clouds, yeah. not because I was looking for clouds, but because I wasn't able to just take it for what it was. I get that. I, I, and I have done that. And I have been there. I have picked apart and dissected and trampled, as you just described, many moments that I should have just sat there and savored. I should have just chewed the food and really enjoyed that the flavor was nice. Mm -hmm. But a buddy of mine says, you just chew it till it tastes shitty. Mm -hmm. and you just keep chewing on something. You're going to keep rolling it over in your head until you have studied it from all the angles. And then part of you will find it's almost like a uh, disingenuous detector. Somewhere in there, there's just like a, a, a fakeness. <laughs> there's this gloss, and I just need a minute. I just let me, and then I'll yeah. find it. And yes, I do that, certainly. But part of me wonders, uh, when does the positive feedback loop end? Like, at what point, so you get done with Heroes and Monsters, and you've worked on it for, you know, a, a shit ton of time, and you hand it in, and it gets in that format that I'm looking at right now that I could touch, this, this you know, 280-page document that has a really cool cover that's finished, and it's got dedications and a publisher and a copyright and all of that, and other people can buy it at Barnes & Noble. And yes, there is much that's insecure about that. And yes, it's terrifying when release day for a new album comes. But part of me also says, if I turned off for just a minute like I used to and I just made for the sake of making and I just released it and then it, for other people could shit on it or they could, you know, have their life altered forever by a sentence that you or I wrote, there's a certain degree of celebration that I find myself desperately wanting to enjoy more than I do. And is worth enjoying. It's the red version of The Guitarist by Pablo, Pablo Picasso. It's the sister painting mm -hmm. where there's, I love making. I enjoy making things. Mm -hmm. This was an accomplishment, this book. This was an accomplishment, this record. This was an accomplishment, this one sentence that I wrote. This one thing was a victory. There are many people that don't sit down and do that. There are many people that don't sit down and write the one sentence or write one song or write a record, let alone book, let alone books let alone a career's worth of creating. Mm -hmm. And there's much to be celebrated in that. You, you're, I think you're familiar with this story. Um, I, I think it was Neil, Neil Gaiman. He came out with, what was it, Sandman or mm -hmm. something like that. And so what is this, like mid-late 80s or something like that. Yeah. And uh, Stephen King became a, a really big fan of, of his work. And the way I've been told the story, which has probably been you know made into you know <laughs> literary folklore and mythology now, but who cares, we're going to go with it. You know, Stephen King shows up to this book signing, waits in line, blah, 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 gets up to the front of Walden Books or whatever existed, you know, back in the Be late dope. 80s, gets up to the front and, you know, whatever, introduces himself, amazing moment for Neil Gaiman. And then when he is given his book, Stephen King says, can I give you one piece of advice? And it's like, okay, Stephen King is about to give me some advice. This is either going to haunt me for the next four decades or this is going to change my life either way. Right. And, he's, and, and he gave him this piece of advice. He said, you should enjoy this. And, you know, it's so, that is, I'm amazed at how, I mean, forget as somebody who makes things, just I think as people, mm 
I can speak for myself. At times, I wonder if I have lost the ability to enjoy a moment. Mm. And it feels like those moments are so fleeting. I had a conversation. Um, I had a conversation with my wife yesterday. And she got some really, really exciting news job-wise. And she came home, and we had really been wanting that for her, um, for her to find something that she loved, you know. Yeah. And she comes home, and, you know, we're stressed about all this other stuff. And a lot of that's just in my head. Some of it's worth stressing about, and some of it I just make worth stressing about. Right. And she came in, and she was kind of rushing between things. And she goes, I got a job offer. I got a job offer. And I, I was so I was so excited. I was so excited. And I went, oh, my gosh. that's am- I was like, tell me all about it, and what do you think? And she's like, well, I, I got to go and do these things, and oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. And, and I kind of lost it. And I went, Kristen, right now, um, with what's going on inside of me, life is too hard. And I am wondering if the mailman is going to show up with a check so we're going to be able to pay the rent. Yeah. I need us right now to celebrate this because there's a lot of, like, fear for me waiting on the other side of the celebration. Yeah. And right now I just need that one moment to be like this little hot air balloon that lifts me above it just, even if it's just for a moment. I just need us to acknowledge that this is really, really good. Yeah. And and I find that that's, that's something I struggle with so much. Even a, a moment of celebration is so often piggybacked by fear. It's like I remember when um, my oldest sister, whom, whom you've met, um, my oldest sister lives, you know, in Chicago and just this amazing, amazing woman. And when her uh, first son was born, Cyrus, you know, it was amazing. We're all in this room and we're celebrating. And, and at that point, you know, my, my mom and dad had been uh, deceased for, you know, almost two years. So it was, it was kind of like this, um, the blooming of our family again. It was really meaningful. And while we're all, you know, in the room, celebrating and you know you've got the stuffed animals and the balloons and these plants and like everything is just kind of echoing new life you know the doctor comes in and he tells us you know there's an abnormality with your son and it was it was just like it, it was just like that it was like i mean in the in the blink of an eye even our ability to celebrate was gone yeah and so i don't think that means that there's this inevitability of gloom in life i don't think that's what it means but for me what that means is i want to learn to savor when life is good because i don't know when the next challenge or obstacle or stress or for me you know in my high anxiety i don't know when that's going to kind of descend once more yes and so kind of in the words of stephen king you know to neil gaiman going you should enjoy this not because it's not ever going to happen again. Yeah. Not because life is horrific, but simply because right now you can. Yeah, you can, and so you should. And I, I think, I don't know. Like I, I, I admire that ability in you, and I feel like that's a way that, as a person, I want to mature. That I can savor something rather than thinking, okay, now when's the other, when's the other shoe gonna drop? Right. More than anything, that quote that he gives, I mean, whatever tuning fork that makes me cry because of happy things, 
Like it goes off when I hear that story. And the thing that I look at is, I guess you could read that moment between Stephen King and Gaiman as him looking at this big line of people, you know, in B. Dalton Bookstore, 1988, and they're wrapped around the room, and he sort of like looks around at other people in this line. He goes, hey, man, you should enjoy all this. Mm-hmm. But part of me doesn't think that that's what he meant. Part of me thinks, or maybe just the piece of me that even more true, yes, you should enjoy the fact that there's so many people here that are here because you wrote something great. That's awesome. Part of me thinks you should enjoy the craft. I, I totally agree with the fact that there's much to be celebrated, and you need to celebrate it and savor it when you see it because you're not sure when circumstances are going to come up that life gets shitty, and you have to deal with that, and that is makes it way harder to be joyful when those moments happen. My only addendum to it is there's so much more to celebrate in the process than we do, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know when the last time, like, after a day's work, work, you spend hours trying to come up with a sentence that's good or a paragraph that's good, and you find it, or you find the one word, and that's a victory. And that's, like, we, we don't pour glasses of nice scotch for a, a well-written paragraph, and I think that we should. Why do you think we don't? I think that we're terrified of it leaving or our gauge of maybe that hunger that we talked about earlier is so strong in us that our hierarchy of that which is praiseworthy is skewed and ridiculous. I I think we have a hard time, or, or again, I'll speak for me, I have a hard time celebrating when I think no one else cares. I think, (laughs) I I think I'm, when I observe life, I see most of our celebrations are kind of constructed around grandeur. There's a scope to it, mm-hmm. you know. It's like um, an event, and it's always in this many people, or it's this much money, or it's in this kind of uh, opulent or ornate place. And for me, there's there's something where I want to be able to celebrate the simple. Yeah. And like that, like that sentence. I mean, I, I I mean, we've talked about this before. For me, the most satisfying moments I've ever had. In writing, there has n- the most satisfying moments have always come when there's no one else in the room. Hmm. It's when it's just me, and in a moment I went, that that that's good, it, I'm, and and it and it has nothing to do with comparison. I'm not saying it's good in comparison to this or it belongs here or people are gonna think whatever. It's just in a private moment I feel like I am somehow orchestrating my sense of purpose in the world on paper. Yeah. And in that moment, I get to see it tangibly with punctuation and letters. And those are the best moments. But I think what's hard for me about celebrating that is going, if I tell this to someone else, are they going to be able to kind of engage that moment and cherish it like I do? Or are they going to go, oh, cool, where do you want to eat? Right. <laughs> and that's kind of that's kind of devastating. You know, that's kind of a that's kind of a devastating moment. But that doesn't mean it's less worth celebrating. It just means that I I have to be confident enough to celebrate it even when other people think it's not worth celebrating. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. Do, I you do, do, do you do that? I mean, is that like a, a regular part for you and Kyle, your bandmate? I mean, is that have, have you have you all made like a, a ritual out of celebrating whether it's when a song is completed or an, or an album or or even when you fumble through something and it doesn't work out? I mean, how does that play out between you all? 
I think it's sort of, it can go as simple as there's a small moment at the end of a long work day where we've like been demoing for hours. We do most of our demoing from the home that we all lived in, just in the living room. Like we set up in this sequestered back living room of our house and we we got in the habit of, you know, when all is said and done, we sit down, we have a drink and we say, hey, we logged in today. Like we, we really clocked hours. We did stuff. We got a lot done. We're thankful for this job. We are grateful for the the chance to make for a living. Mm-hmm. What an absurd notion. <laughs> I get to make up fictional things and stories and sing about them, and that's what I get to do to pay bills. I'm so grateful. I'm so glad that I get to do this. And so, yeah, we've built in these moments at the end of long work days, and I try and be as mindful as I can to remind us to do these things, to say, hey, this is really good. And to revisit those things. Like, God, why can't we look back at baby pictures and be like, man, what a great day it was when, when you were born. <laughs> yeah. Like, that is, that memory is praiseworthy. There's so much good yeah. that I see that is celebration. It should be celebration inducing. It's so, it's so interesting, though, because when I, as you, as you say that, I immediately go to how do I respond when I see photographs of me in past eras of my life Mm -hmm. like what is my immediate kind of emotional reaction you know it's like okay there's josh wearing a starter jacket you know there's josh wearing you know his skids you know overalls or whatever but i find that part of the reason that's difficult for me um what you're talking about is because oftentimes when i look back on these past versions of me or these previous moments it's not, it's not a healthy sense of pride or satisfaction. It's a sense of shame, and it's like, I don't want that guy to exist anymore. Totally. It's like, I want, I want, that, I want that person to be gone. Yeah. And so a lot of times, that's, that's probably a hang-up for me when it comes to the process of uh, celebrating is it's, is it's so often like my sense of celebration is immediately cloaked by this sense of shame. Right. And it prohibits my ability to go, this is good. And I'm allowed to enjoy this. I don't have to find shame in 35-year-old Josh or 32-year-old Josh. I mean, you know this, and you know, anyone anyone listening, just go ahead and imagine it. But you know, I have I have this tattoo on my right arm that was originally back in the in the uh, you know circa 1997 Josh. It was an ex-girlfriend tattoo, and I remember once me and that girl's relationship came to this you know unceremonious and crumbling halt. I remember thinking, I need to cover this. I need to cover this. And that's so indicative of the way, I mean, it's like this microcosm of how I viewed my life. Rather than seeing this ex-girlfriend tattoo as a representative of an era of who I was at that time Mm -hmm. and wanting it to remain a part of me, I wanted to get rid of it. And so I covered it in the way I, or I, I guess I didn't cover it, it was amended. And then alongside it, it was made into a tattoo for my mom. And then as my mom and I, you know, kind of veered in terms of our relationship, I wanted to cover that. And it really is so like, it's like this little metaphor for not only how I often view myself, but why I I often struggle to do things like celebrate. Because I, I, historically, I look at what I've done or look at who I was, and I don't want to remember it. I don't think it's worth celebrating. I want to walk away from it. Yeah. And whereas I wouldn't disagree, I look at 17-year-old Andy and most of me just wants to fight him. <laughs> I, yes, there is much to mourn with past decisions, but I also look at 
Um, so much of 17 year old Andy would probably look at 12 year old Andy and be like, man, he knew less. He knew less. And I think about where I was at 18, 19, 20, 25, and yes, there's much to mourn, but I'm also pretty stoked about who I am now and the trajectory that my life is on. And there are certain things that I'm aware that I could be easily typecast as being a hunter for the silver lining. And yeah, put it this way, if I have to err on one side of the fence, I'll err on hunting for that instead of the more sometimes realistic approach of being like, no, that was really crummy, and there's nothing good about that moment. Yeah, right, you know, right. Like that's a deplorable season yeah. of life that right. you don't crack a champagne for that. Mm-hmm. But I look back on not only the past and find that there's much to celebrate, much more than I feel like we normally give the past credit for, but there's celebration in the sense that you're not there anymore, like that there's moving forward. Mm-hmm. I love that I don't know that I would have made the things that I've made song-wise, if I didn't have that small season in New York a long time ago. Mm. I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. That's in in the multiverse. I'm not sure which strain of Andy that would have been that continued from that day with more confidence. Yeah, right. Part of me would really like to know that, Andy. But also part of me wonders whether or not the life that I have now and my wife and my band and the albums that we have that I'm proud of and I enjoy. I don't know if they would have been conjured up from the ether if I didn't have that stuff. I had a, I had a, a, a man ask me one time and he, um, he, I guess, labeled himself vocationally as a global artist consultant. So, you know, whatever spy, but he, <laughs> yeah. you know, but he would meet with artists around the world and he wasn't so much consulting um, with them and aiding them in their project, more just about understanding who they were as human beings. Um, and I met with him, and I mean, if you can imagine, you know, Christopher Lloyd as Doc Emmett Brown in, in the Back to the Future movies, he, he really, I mean, he's like a, uh, you know, like a doppelganger of him. Cool. And through, you know, an hour and a half of conversation at this point, you know, um, our Chinese food is dwindling toward the end you know, chopsticks in these little white cartons and he slides his little carton aside and he leans forward on the table and he asked me this question. He says, Josh, what's your unfair advantage? And I had no idea what, what like that question meant. I knew the words he said, but I didn't know what they meant. But immediately I associated the word advantage with, okay, step ahead, leg up. So I, I responded. I said, "Well, um, I mean, I'm a I'm a I'm a published author, and I, you know, I grew up middle class, and though you know, my family like like most families had its share of dysfunction. I mean, I, you know, I had I had a roof over my head. I got a good education. And as I'm saying all these things, he's looking at me and going, "That's not an advantage. That's not an advantage. That's not an advantage." And so I'm, you know, you kind of are digging deeper into the bucket of your life and throwing these things out there. I'm like, "Well, I." I I, you know, went to college and he's like, that's not an advantage. I'm like, I'm, I have this amazing wife who I love and, you know, she's absolutely incredible and she loves me and he's, he's, and he just keeps shaking his head. And so finally I get to this point where I go, I go, well, um, you know, my dad was an alcoholic and, you know, my parents lived in different parts of the house and they, they, you know, for the last 
decade of their life hardly said a word to each other and they were hoarders and we had 13 cats in our house and I was so ashamed to ever have anyone over I never want anyone to come over and at the time I you know when I was meeting with him I was going through the 12 steps and I'm like and I'm in the 12 steps so I say all that and he goes that's your advantage and at this point I'm so bewildered by it all I just go I just go I kind of nod and then I say Stan I don't I don't understand and he said, what's going what's gonna to really make you powerful and what's going to really enable you to bring good into the lives of other people, it's not just that you've been given a platform. It's that you've been given pain so that when you're on the platform, you can understand the pain of other people. And hearing that and hearing him talk about that and, and starting to think about these moments in my life that I never would have chosen, whether it's a dysfunction in my family or whether it's looking at foolish decisions I made at one point in time, yeah. I'm amazed how when I am willing to embrace those moments, not relive the pain of them, but right. embrace them and allow myself to create out of those places and converse out of those places and talk to people and listen out of those places, I'm amazed at how much um, more connected I am able to be to the world around me yeah. And I'm amazed at how so often the things I make that mean the most to other people, at least when I hear it, yeah. it's made from those places. And, 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 and that's like a, that's a really, that's a tremendous thing to think that these areas that I might be most ashamed of might actually bring the most liberty to other people if I would be willing to make something out of them. Yeah. I mean, part of me agrees with Stan, and part of me wants to push back and go back through the list and, you know, Jacob Marley my way into the conversation <laughs> and just watch it and to hear mm -hmm. the whole, like, to jot down all the list of things that you threw out at mm -hmm. first, all these great things. Mm -hmm. Bounced around in multiple colleges and multiple different uh, states and countries. Mm -hmm. and, and I would say, by his rubric, maybe that's an unfair advantage as well. Mm -hmm. Your ability to write about the things and to relive and to repurpose and to show off the, the beauty as well as the triumph in the face of despair. I guess uh, it goes back to the thing that we talked about earlier to where there seems to be more weight pressed upon that which was heavy and getting through it or sad and getting through it. And I don't know why it can't be on equal footing with how did I process my life through that which was a triumph. Mm -hmm. The moment when, you know, it's like in a capsule catching the moment you were all celebrating with your family before you heard about uh, the full state of Cyrus. Mm -hmm. Like holding on to that and being like, okay, that's powerful. That's an unfair advantage as well as the moment that you have to deal with the, the 30 seconds later when the yep. doctor walks in. And a lot of that's hindsight, sometimes years later. <laughs> and I get yep. that. Mm -hmm. But I guess both of those moments can be an engine. And I don't inherently think yes. that one is stronger than the other. Mm. I feel like the, the general consensus for the, what we do is that, oh, God, but it's those moments when you write about the heavy. It's when you've <laughs> brought me out from darkness into light. Yeah. Like, why can't I take light and make it brighter? like almost blinding. Mm -hmm. Why can't I take that which was really beautiful and, oh, my God, you didn't think it could be more so, but mm -hmm. it was. Mm -hmm. I, I don't. And, and, and I agree with that in theory. But when I think through what are the things, and, and I could speak from my life, the things that have resonated with me most, the things that have probably left the greatest mark on my life in terms of um, film, music, television, literature, whatever, 
for whatever reason, for me, those things do tend to be more, um, not that they don't have their levity and not that they aren't, maybe they were created out of joy. Yeah. But from like a literary standpoint, most of the stories that I tend to resonate most are tragedies. Like <laughs> yeah. they just are. I mean, there's a reason William Shakespeare is still here yeah. after all these years and not that he didn't write comedy as well. But I mean, if we were to go, well, what were the things that of his that really lasted most? I mean, generally speaking, we're going to say Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, Hamlet. Hamlet, right? And so it doesn't it, it doesn't mean that the, the, the Tempest wasn't great or Midsummer Night's Dream wasn't great. They're, those are amazing, too. But there's something about tragedy that has like this, I, I don't know, it has like a gravity that for me, I, I tend to um, hold on to. Hmm. Not, not necessarily to relive the tragedy, but it just, it sticks with me, it marks me in a certain way. But I think, I think you're absolutely right, but sometimes my life seems to belie that point. Yeah, I won't disagree, and I also can't, I mean, this probably shoots my... Uh, earlier statement in the foot to a certain degree, but I gravitate towards the sad. I love sad songs. I love sad books. I love sad stories and sad movies. Mostly, I think, because they make me feel, and I, I like that. Mm. And I love things that make me feel deeply or plunge into these experiences emotionally that either I haven't undergone or just make me ponder the depth of the range of human emotion. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciate those things. Mm -hmm. And for a person who cries three to four times a week and who during this brief interview has cried twice, once at a Stephen King quote in the middle of a you know, <laughs> book signing, uh, I, guess, I guess I sort of wish, <laughs> this is maybe more deep and unnecessarily profound than I wanted it to be, or, I want people to see more of the happy moments and to dwell and celebrate on them more than we do, mm -hmm. because I see a, an immense surplus of sad shit mm -hmm. on this earth, mm -hmm. and not a lot of desire to dwell on the things that aren't. Mm -hmm. And so part of me just wants to be an agent of change in the sense that, and sometimes I feel like a snake oil salesman, honestly, that's like, look over here, though. Look over yeah. here. I get that shit's hard. I get yeah. it. But if we could just for a minute, <laughs> smoke and mirrors. Ma maybe for just for a minute, if we could even yeah. just conjure up a grin, maybe it'll become reality. Yeah, maybe. But I think that's part of why you have such a unique voice in music. I mean, I, I, I think I think that comes through in your music, not not necessarily always in the in an overt way. And I think it's great because you're not telling people be happy. You're not telling people forget what's hard. Right. Um, I think through your own joy in music your own joy for language, your own joy for poetry, um, and for, for offering that to people, I think in doing that, you provide, you provide that, even if the subject matter itself isn't necessarily, you know, the, the lightest per se. Right. But to me, it's because of the place where you create it from that gives that to people, not because of what the song is saying per se. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was going back through in my head, like, the subject matter of the records that we've had and the elements that it tackles narratively, like infidelity, hope deferred, all these things. And I do think that there's this thing in humanity that wants to see, um, you know, the good and evil, black hat, white hat battle 
and then we want to see light prevail, I think, for the most part. And if anything, our music has tried to plunge to the depth of like really pitch black darkness and say like, hey, it's really not, your eyes will adjust. Mm-hmm. If you if you stick around this, you're going to find like that there's pinpricks of light down here to be found. Mm-hmm. Like this posited doom and gloom of certain really bad scenarios is not the end of days. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. you can live, not only can you live through this, but you can flourish and thrive af- in the aftermath. And I, I, I mean, as I said, I, th- I think that comes through in what y'all make. And I think that's part of what makes it very, very um, unique and meaningful to you know all the people that that love what y'all do. I think I think my hope for you, I think my hope for you is that um, in the same way, I mean the reverse would be true for me, that I wouldn't let my skepticism get in the way of when it's time to be optimistic, and that for you, you wouldn't let your optimism get in the way of your ability to grieve or be skeptical or engage the other end of the spectrum. I, you know. Not that any of us is supposed to be everything we're not, and I think that's, you know, I mean, it's the whole, like, why even as, a, as humanity but as artists, we're all, like, our voice in the collective choir, yeah. right? And being willing to play our note, trusting that it fits into something bigger. Right. But personally, on a personal level, for my own health and for the, the person I want to become through what I make, I want to be someone who can just celebrate and can go, you know what, this is just really good. And my hope for you, you know, not my only hope, but, you know, is the inverse of that, that when it's hard, you don't have to look for the pinprick of light and you can go, you know, there's a lot to be learned by just sitting in darkness sometimes. Yeah. Although I'm not well practiced in it, I'm not devoid of seeing the good in what you just said and what you just described. I know that I will, uh, it's a great hope of mine that what you just breathed upon me comes to fruition, that I get better at that. I feel that tug in me when shit goes haywire to be pragmatic and to fix. Mm -hmm. I don't want to stay there long. I don't want to be there long because most of me thinks that, you know, the grin is a better state of being than it is to be negative and to be sad, which Ultimately, I'm aware my rational brain can tell me sitting in the grief and sitting in the bleak moment garners a deeper, harder-earned fruit that maybe I don't have a lot of in my, in my heart, but I want because I'd like to be made of sturdier stuff at times. Yeah, I'd like to be not only an artist, but a man that... Uh, is able to be okay when the unavoidable shit hits the fan because it's going to. I'm aware of it. Yeah. And sometimes I feel like my job on this planet and my community of friends and as an artist is to be the one that when no one else can find a smile, I've got a bag of them. And I've got enough, not only for me, but I might even have plenty for everyone if you just stick around me long enough. This is an indomitable hope I have. So, but I do feel like, to be totally honest with you, and even more so after a conversation like this one, that I would benefit greatly from closing my mouth when when stuff goes wrong and just 
staying put for a minute. And if it's looking at the pinprick and then sprinting at it as hard and as fast as I can with the fake smile on until I get to the surface and I'm like, oh, okay, we're back, we're good, hmm. then I usually do that. Hmm. But I certainly don't think my rational brain tells me that there's stuff to be gained from the dark. There's stuff that you can harvest from those moments, and I don't spend a lot of time trying. Well, Again, the inverse of that, <laughs> to, use your, to use your language, you know, you're trapped down there looking for the light, and I'm standing in the light going, man, it's real bright. <laughs> it's real bright in here. Where's the abyss? Let me get back into that abyss real quick. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure that either is, uh, either is better. But thanks so much for doing this, man. Always learn a lot from you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I don't want to rattle, and I've got no plans to let myself be tossed away But this muscle, all this muscle Could never lift a thing without you